Uh, we will be continuing our teaching series in Job called Sovereign Suffering. <clears throat> we have been studying Eliphaz's first speech, which we see in chapters 4 and 5. And uh, I've divided it into three parts with six R's. In part one, we looked at Eliphaz's rebuke, his reasoning, and his revelation. In part two, we looked at more of Eliphaz's reasoning, and we also looked at his recommendation. In the next section, we are going to look at part three, and we will examine the final R, which is Eliphaz's reminder. Now, this section takes a different tack from the usual thrust of the friend's case. Remember, his friends are presenting a case to him. Rather than focusing on suffering as punishment, Eliphaz posited the possibility that trouble is therapeutic and remedial and that God had Job's good in mind and not just his justice. And he implores Job to repent because he thinks that Job is in sin. We've already learned that over and over, by the way. He implores Job, whom he thinks is in sin, to repent. He's basically telling him here and throughout, the, throughout most of the book here to repent. And, and here the theory is, is that if Job repents, then this will restore his relationship with God and resume the flow of God's blessings into his life. That's the gist of this text. Please take your Bibles and turn to Job chapter 5. We will be looking at the last and final section here, which is verses 17 through 27. I think it's befitting that I pray once more before we actually uh, divide the Word and study the Word. Father, we now come to you humbly and thank you first and foremost for allowing us to sing to you and to read scripture and to fellowship and do the things that we've been able to do thus far. Thank you for those worshipful components. And now we humble ourselves and ask that you help us comprehend, help us see and, and understand and hear uh, your word as it is proclaimed from scripture. And we pray that we wouldn't be mere hearers, but we would also be doers of the word. And so, Father, we submit ourselves to you. We ask for your help, and we ask for it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, we can pick up where we left off last Sunday and move to the final R. Number six, Eliphaz's reminder, and this is captured in the rest of the text, verses 17 through 27, but we'll pick up at verses 17 and 18. I'll go ahead and read it and then give you the commentary of it. Um, this is the next thing that Eliphaz says to Job. He says, Behold, blessed is the one whom God reproves. Therefore, despise not the discipline of the Almighty. And he says, For he wounds, but he binds up. He shatters, but his hands heal. We stop there as... As the rest of his, uh, his first speech, this is just pure poetry, which makes it a little challenging to understand. But in any case, as I've already mentioned, Eliphaz believed that Job had sinned and that everything that he lost, his, his wealth, his family, and his health, every bit of impact and suffering and affliction that came into Job's life, 
Eliphaz believed it was because he had sinned and he was now being disciplined by God. Uh, the loss of his wealth, family, and health proved that he was under divine reproof, or we would say correction would be more of a modern-day word for that. And Job thought he was actually under a curse of God in chapter 3, verse 1, where we see him cursing the day of his birth and all that. But Eliphaz here reminds him that the person whom God makes the effort to correct should be considered blessed. That's the reminder here, basically. <clears throat> Those whom God reproves are blessed because the presence of divine correction is an expression of God's loving care for that person. In other words, if God takes the time to reproof someone, a divine correction that shows that God is interested in that person's life, has love for them, and is correcting them for their own good. Now, when my sons were a lot younger, now look at them, they're gigantic, uh, but when my sons were a lot younger, I had to discipline them <clears throat> on occasion. And uh, once in a while, they had to get the belt. And some of you were thinking, ah, oh, child abuse. Well, your child's going to abuse you if you don't spank them once in a while. Let me tell you right now. Might end up in the correctional uh, situation there. You, once in a while, you have to give your child the rod. You have to give them that kind of discipline depending on the situation. Now, some parents spank their kids for just looking at them silly, and I think that's ridiculous. But you got to do this, and I had to do it with them once in a while. And, and the funny thing is, is that when you do that, you, you don't have to do it all the time. If you make an impression on the child, if you have to spank your kid every other day, okay, you're failing as a parent. Either you're not spanking them correctly or you're just abusing them. But once in a while, you know, I had to do this with them, and it was, it was for these higher offenses. I would call it like a capital offense, right? In my house, there were like certain things where, you know, we didn't do the timeout thing. That didn't exist when I was growing up. I was born in 1969. A timeout was something that you did on the football field. So there was no sending to the corner. There was no timeout. It was, you know, well, maybe you would get sent to your room. But with my dad, most of the time, it was a spanking. But these capital offenses in our house could earn you a classic butt whooping. And uh, I had to do this with them from time to time. Not very often, but from time to time. And, and here's the deal. You may see it differently, but I spanked them from time to time, depending on the offense, because I actually loved them. That's why I did it, because I loved them. I didn't do it because I was mad at them. That, that's something right there you got to be careful with. Your child could upset you to the point where you get angry and then you discipline them. Well, that's, that's, that, there's a fine line there. You can't be angry. You can't grab your kid, rip them out of what they're doing, and just start beating on them. That is abusive. So you, but I would, you know, I would do this not in anger. I would say I was usually very calm, which made me kind of a sociopath with them, which scared them. I said, okay, let's go ahead and go into your room now, you know, like Mr. Rogers. Let's go ahead and drop your shorts, right? Then I take off my belt, right? So they were like, oh my gosh, he's in sociopath mode. What are we going to do? But this is something that I would do, but it was because I loved my children. Now, I didn't love spanking them. I didn't want to do that. But I wasn't one of those parents that would say, you're making me do this and I don't want to do it. Have you ever heard those words before? You're making me do something I don't want to do. Bruce is laughing, so he's done this probably with his children. 
But I would have to do this once in a while, but it was out of love. It was because I loved my sons. My sons needed that discipline. It was formative for them. But you don't do it out of anger. Now, the thing is, is that it's, it's very similar with God. He reproves whom He loves. Right? Proverbs 3.12, Hebrews 12.6. I would say this, a spanking from God, because have you ever been spanked by God? I'm not talking about you had your pants dropped and you got God's divine belt across your rear end. I'm talking about where you just did something stupid and ridiculous and then God disciplined you. And maybe that discipline came through some elders or something like that or a friend. But have you ever had that happen to you? I'm telling you that when God gives you a divine spanking, it is because He loves you. Just as when a parent does that for their child. You think of uh, Proverbs 13, 24, which talks about when your son or daughter needs that level of discipline, when you spare the rod, it's an act of hate. This is what Scripture teaches. It is hateful to spare your child the rod when your child needs the rod. It would be hateful for God to spare us that kind of discipline when we need it. What kind of father would he be if he spared his children discipline all the time or didn't give them effective discipline? He would become a willful party to their own death as we would with our own children if we don't just discipline them rightly. So a spanking, I would say a spanking from God, divine chastisement, is a sure sign of his love for us. When we undergo divine chastisement, God is treating us as sons and daughters. Hebrews 12, 7b. This is literally what the text says. He disciplines his sons and daughters. Now, it may seem painful rather than pleasant. Amen? But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Hebrews 12, 11. Now, according to Eliphaz, Job should be happy with his situation. I mean, you've lost... You've lost all your, you were very wealthy, you've lost all your wealth, you've lost 10 children in a single blast of wind that tumbled the house in on them. You've lost your health. I mean, the guy, the guy's a, a bloody, pussy, boiled mess. He, he's a real mess here. And, but yet Eliphaz is telling him, Job, yeah, I know you look bad and I know you feel bad, but you ought to be happy with your situation because divine chastisement is an expression of God's. Uh, it's an expression of God's love toward you. And Eliphaz's theory here is that this divine chastisement will eventually put Job in right standing with God. Therefore, he should rejoice in these tragedies that have befell him, because God will use all this stuff to restore their broken relationship. Uh, verse eighteen sounds. A bit like Isaiah chapter 30, verse 26b, the Lord binds up the brokenness of His people and He heals the wounds inflicted by His blow. Now, since God wounds but binds up and shatters but heals, Job should not despise the discipline of the Almighty. This is what Eliphaz tells him. This proverb-like truth is entirely true, but it is completely misapplied here. Job was not 
under divine discipline. He was not being chastened by his heavenly father. He was not being reproved by God because of his sin. We know this. He was blameless. He was upright. He feared God. He shunned evil, which means that he was not walking in unrepentant sin. So so what Eliphaz is saying to Job is entirely true, but it doesn't apply to Job at this juncture because Job is blameless and upright. He's not under divine chastisement. Job was in right standing with God. You see, Eliphaz wants him to get back into the right standing with God so that their relationship can flourish and God's blessings can flow to him. But what Eliphaz didn't understand is that Job was in right standing with God when these tragedies, when this suffering happened. He was perfectly right with God. He was blameless. He couldn't be blamed by God for sin. He couldn't be blamed by anyone else for sin. When his calamity struck, he was walking in righteousness. It was his righteousness that inspired divine testing that brought about Satan's attacks, not his unrighteousness. You see, Eliphaz had it completely backwards. He had misjudged his dear friend who was suffering exponentially. Eliphaz thinks that, man, you're being chastened because of your sin, but Job was a righteous, blameless, upright man. And so the truth of of these verses of 17 and 18 are entirely true. God does do this for His children. But this is misapplied here, misappropriated. Uh, This this was not the time, this, this was not a time in Job's life where this actually applied. He was not under this chastisement. In verses 19 through 26, Eliphaz describes what will actually happen if and when Job repents. He literally gives Job a list of things that will happen. Look, look, brother, if if you just, I know you're suffering, I know you're hurting, I know you look terrible, man, I can't even look at you, you're gross. I know you're in a bad way, but if you would just repent of whatever sin you hidden sin you have, because I know you have sin, because you wouldn't be going through these things. God would not do this to you if you didn't have sin. If you would just repent of your sin, here is what will happen for you. He literally gives him a list. I think there's probably about 11 things here or so. And we'll look at them. We'll begin with A. Here's the first promise from Eliphaz to Job, Job will experience total deliverance. We see this in verse 19. Eliphaz tells Job, he will deliver you from six troubles. In seven, no evil shall touch you. Okay, so so this particular text is to be taken poetically, not literally. Six troubles basically means many troubles. When many troubles come into your life, Job, God is going to deliver you from them. This is precisely what he's saying. And then the number seven, the culminating number here, it indicates perfection or completion and appears to underscore the fact that God will deliver Job from every type of trouble. If the Sabians create trouble for Job again like they did originally, right? God will deliver him from the Sabians. 
if the Chaldeans, another people group who attacked Job's estate and people and everything else, if the Chaldeans create trouble for Job, Eliphaz is saying, look, if you repent, God will deliver you from the Chaldeans. If the weather creates trouble for Job, which it did, right? A wind came in and blew the house down, killed his kids. If the weather creates trouble, Job, God will deliver you from the weather. This is an amazing promise. It'd be really good if you lived over in Tornado Alley. If a virus or deadly bacteria, COVID, creates trouble for Job, God will deliver you from that. He does have a deadly virus right now, does he not? He's got boils all over his body. He's infected. He's got wounds. He's got scars. He's in bad shape. He's got a type of leprosy. God will deliver you from that too, Job. Eliphaz tells Job that he will be delivered from every type of trouble, and no evil shall touch him if he will repent, if he will repent. And we do see this principle truth in Psalm 34, verse 19. It was Psalm 34 that I had Bruce read earlier. It says, many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. So we see this as a principle truth in other scripture. That's the first thing. B, Job will not die from famine or war. Verse 20. Eliphaz tells him in his list, In famine God will redeem you from death, and in war He will deliver you from the power of the sword. Now, this region that they lived in, Edom, or basically the Middle East, it gets rain only during certain months of the year, still today. And it is reasonably dry throughout most of the year. This is a desert region. So famines were very common, and the threat of death by starvation was very real. People died of starvation because of famines all the time in this region. You warmongering nomads like the Sabians and Chaldeans were also a major threat as they moved throughout Edom looking for people to victimize. The threat of death by the power of the sword was very real as well. By sword is the Old Testament's way of speaking of a violent death, usually in battle. A soldier might be killed by javelin, arrow, or fire, but sword covers all of those categories. It is the opposite of a peaceful death at the end of a long life. Eliphaz tells Job that he will not die by famine, he will not die by sword, the two major killers of people in his day, he will not die by either of them if he will simply repent. He's saying God will not allow you to, to, to succumb to famine, to succumb to the sword if you will repent. He will shield you. He will protect you from the Sabians. He will protect you from the Chaldeans. He will protect you from drought. He will protect you from starvation. These are meaningful promises in Job's day. To us, they probably don't mean much. I mean, we go to the grocery store, we got all we need. You go to the gun store, you really can't get all you need there because everything's sold out. But for the most part, you can protect yourself and you can, you know, and you can buy food and stuff. So these promises aren't all that meaningful to us. But let me tell you something. To Job, they were very meaningful. These were real threats. And we see this 
principle in Psalm 33, verse 18 to 19. In fact, we see all the, all of, most of these things that we're going over here today we see in the Psalms. Uh, that text says, Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear Him, on those who hope in His steadfast love, that He may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. There's where it's represented. C, Job will escape the accusations of others. Verse 21a, you shall be hidden from the lash of the tongue. Job's calamity had raised much suspicion among his neighbors and peers. People thought he had brought these things on himself, and now he was getting what he deserved. Even his close friends accused him of this. Eliphaz tells Job that, that he will escape the accusations of others if he will repent. Now, maybe this promise isn't all that meaningful to us. Maybe it is, but to, jo to Job it meant a lot. Back in Job's day, the, the reputation of a person was foremost. It, it, was, it was huge. If you had a, a poor reputation, you couldn't do much. And if people slandered you and, 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 and helped to paint a negative picture of you, it had a cultural impact on you. The accusations are like darts. And, and, and I don't know about you, but I don't like having accusations hurled against me. All right? Do you like that? I don't like the way it feels. But let me tell you, this was super meaningful in Job's day, this promise. Eliphaz is telling him that if you will repent, God will protect you from the slanderers, from the gossips. You, you know, when you have a guy that's as wealthy as Job and he goes from super wealthy and healthy to a transient on a trash pile at the city dump with boils all over him, wouldn't you think that people were going to talk? Wouldn't you think that people would say, what on earth happened to that guy? What did he do to tick off God? People were chattering about him. People were accusing him of sin because his life wouldn't look like that if he hadn't been in sin. This deliverance from the lash of the tongue, we see this principle in Psalm 31, verse 20. In the cover of your presence, you hide them from the plots of men. You store them in your shelter from the strife of tongues. D, Job will not fear calamity. 21b, we see it in verse 21b. Continuing, he says, and shall not fear destruction when it comes. Job was not a fearful man before calamity befell his life, basically destroyed his life. He was not a fearful man prior to that. He was, however, periodically anxious about things like his wealth, about his family, about his health, like all people, right? Any of us, if, 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 if any of us were to, to stand up and say, I never worry about anything, you would be a liar. We all worry about things at times. It doesn't mean that we we, we, we walk in persistent or consistent fear, but sometimes we have anxieties and sometimes we have worries. I mean, it, it, if you're going to go into pastoral ministry, just be prepared to have anxiety and anxiousness because you will worry about your people constantly. 
When you look out and see a room that's missing a lot of people and you know they should be here, maybe some are sick and they can't be, it worries you. Why are they not here? You're, you're constantly battling anxiousness and concerns because God has appointed you to be an under-shepherd to people. And so in pastoral ministry, this is something that I wrestle with all the time. I would not call myself fearful. I wouldn't call myself overly courageous either. I mean, those who are closest to me would say he's kind of a sissy lala sometimes. But Job was not a fearful man before calamity struck, but he did worry from time to time just like we all do. But sadly, he became fearful after losing everything. You know, sometimes losses and deep losses will create and generate fear in us because we will spend time after that worrying and being fearful over more losses. We, if, 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 if we have gone through, which I think is probably one of the most terrible trials in life, and that is to lose a child, and you have other children, you will be fearful of losing your other children. This is natural. And, and I believe, without a doubt, Job became fearful after all those losses. He feared that more calamity would come. He feared that he might lose his wife. I mean, this is conjecture, but I think we can find it in the text with his worry. But I'm, I'm fairly certain that after losing all his kids and everything else, I'm, I'm pretty sure he thought maybe at times, maybe I could lose my wife. And if you go back and read at the end of chapter 1, you might think that that would have been a blessing because he was telling him to curse God and die. But that was a momentary lapse of biblical reason for her. She had lost all her children. We say stupid things when we are hurt like that. I have no doubt that at times he thought, man, if I lose my wife. And in some ways, he had lost her. She was probably back at the estate. I don't think she was on the ash heap with him. But he probably worried about that. He feared that his affliction, that his emotional, spiritual physical pain would not end. I know that he feared this. If you've had any sort of serious pain for any length of time, you might fear that it's not going to go away. You might say things like, is this how I'm going to have to spend the rest of my days? I don't know if I can endure this pain. It happens. I know that he feared, no doubt, reading the whole book, I know that he feared that God would not Tell him why he suffered, why he lost everything. That was probably the biggest thing that he feared of all. He wanted answers from God. For crying out loud in the last section, Eliphaz told him, take your case to God. From that point forward, that's all Job does. Why, 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 why? And he feared that he would never get an answer. And guess what? He never got an answer. God simply gives him an answer. I'm God and you're not. I know one thing that he feared without a doubt. He feared that his three pals, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, would not stop talking. Will they? I, I am so fearful, God, that they won't shut up. No doubt he feared that. I fear that for him if you read the letter. And Eliphaz promises deliverance from every type of trouble, every type of trouble. If Job repents, so what? There would be no reason for him to fear calamity, no reason for him to, to fear destruction when it comes. Why? Because God's just going to deliver him from all those things. So you don't have to be 
fearful. You don't have to be trepidatious. You don't have to be anxious. God's going to take you through all of it. Don't worry about it. He'll bring you through it. That's what Eliphaz is promising. And we do see this principle in another psalm, Psalm 31, verse 21 and 22. Blessed be the Lord, for He has wondrously shown His steadfast love to me when I was in a besieged city, a city under attack. He says, I had said in my alarm, I am cut off from your sight, Lord, but you heard the voice of my pleas for mercy when I cried to you for help. What a beautiful psalm, the idea that this guy is in a, a city that's under attack and he's, he's terrified and fearful that he's going to die in the attack and in the besiegement of this city, and he cries out to God for mercy and deliverance from that war that's happening in that city, and God hears his pleas and delivers him, delivers him from the fear of that calamity. That's the principle there. E, Job will chuckle at calamity. It's <laughs> the last time you heard that word. Only chuckleheads use it. Uh, verse 22a, Eliphaz says, At destruction and famine you shall laugh. Isn't that great? Ha, ha, ha. Ah, yeah, I don't generally laugh at those things. Now, the opposite of fearing is what? Laughing. And that would be the response to destruction and famine from those delivered by their God. They will just laugh and scoff at it because they know God will deliver them from it. Or they'll laugh as God is delivering them from it. Now, for those living on the border between the desert and farmlands, these two threats were frequent and real. Destruction could come from thieving bands of Sabians and Chaldeans. We've already seen that in the text. Famine could come as a result of a year of sparse rains. So the idea here is that there's a, there's a specific destruction that, that uh, Eliphaz has in mind, and it's two bits of destruction that have already impacted Job because of where he lives in Edom. Raiding bands of Chaldeans and Sabians, uh, famine, these sorts of things. You know what, Job? If you will just repent of your sin, get back in right standing with God, when the Sabians come, you will laugh at them. Ha <laughs> ha! Hi, Sabians! You're not going to be able to touch my cows this time or whatever. I would think that arrows would start flying as soon as he mocked them like that. Eliphaz tells him, you're just going to chuckle whenever calamity comes, no matter what kind of calamity it is. If it's drought or whatever, you're, it's not going to matter. If you just repent, you'll just laugh at these things. Well, Job had been through these things, was going through them in a sense, and he wasn't laughing, was he? No. But that's the promise that's made. F. Job, this is a bizarre one, but it, it makes sense for the context. Job will not fear wild animals. Verse 22b, uh, it says, and shall not fear the beasts of the earth. Now, again, context is everything, right? This is not something that resonates with me. I mean, we live, I don't know where you live, but I live here in Modesto, and the only wild animals we have around us are our neighbors. Ha, 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 ha. I chuckle at them. Uh, we don't really have, once in a while I see a pit bull running down the street. I definitely go inside when I see that. It's like a land shark. I don't know what he's doing out, and he looks like he's going to kill something. We don't have this issue, right? Do you have this issue of fear of wild beasts? 
Now think about Job's time period. This is probably right before or after the Tower of Babel, shortly after the flood. What I'm telling you is that there may have still been dinosaurs on earth at this time. Some people say, well, all the dinosaurs went extinct with the flood. Fossil record seems to, seems to vindicate that argument in a sense, but there are dinosaurs mentioned in the book of Job. Leviathan, um, behemoth, they're mentioned in chapter 3, verse 8, uh, chapter 40, verse 15, chapter 41, verse 1. Uh, Leviathan is described as being too big to catch with a fish hook, too big to nose rope, too big to bind its jaw like a crocodile, too big to play with. <laughs> it literally says that. Like, you, you, can't, you can't let your daughter play with it. It literally says that in one of these. I'm like, what the heck? Here's, a, here's a, a dinosaur that looks like the biggest crocodile we've ever seen. Honey, I brought it home for you from the mall. Right? They had it at Petco. I mean, too big to play with, too big to turn into a pet, too big to kill with harpoons, too big to kill with fishing spears, and too big to battle Chapter 41, verses 1 through 8. If you don't believe me, that's literally how it's listed. This was a, a dinosaur that, that lived in the sea. It was a sea-bearing dinosaur. Now, I just want you to think about it for a moment. There is no animal in the sea in which man cannot subdue, right? I mean, unfortunately and sadly, men have killed the largest whales, the blue whales, the biggest whales. They have mastered... Every animal on earth, but no man or army of men could subdue Leviathan in Job's day. It was too big, too powerful, too dangerous. You just couldn't handle it. If you saw this thing, you went in the other direction. You didn't try to throw a lasso on it and take it home to your kid. Here, I know you wanted a, a toy poodle, but this is the best I could do. It ate the toy poodle on the way home. Behemoth is described as a grass eater with strength in his loins, power in the muscles of his belly, and his tail is like cedar. It's like a, a tree. His bones are like tubes of bronze, and his limbs are like bars of iron. Chapter 40, verses 15 through 18. Behemoth was tall enough to stand in the middle of a turbulent river. And when he did this, he would simply stick his mouth in the water, open his mighty jaws, and let the river water rush down his throat. That's how he quenched his thirst. Chapter 40, verse 23. Now, some say Behemoth was maybe a hippopotamus, maybe an elephant, Maybe even one of those really large prehistoric uh, elephants, a mastodon, a giant elephant. The, the, the problem with all of those animals are, and they're very big animals. Yes, they go into the sea. They can do these things. I have watched uh, National Geographic where I've seen an elephant traverse a river. I've seen that. I get it. The problem with all those animals is they have the littlest sissy la-la tail in the world. Have you ever seen an elephant tail? It's a massive beast, and then it's got this you know, piece of spaghetti hanging off the back of it that it's whipping the flies off its back. What are you going to do with that? That's not a cedar, right? Behemoth had a, a tail like a tree. That's a serious tail. 
It was a dinosaur. There were also lions, tigers, and bears. Oh, my. <laughs> Stupid. I actually wrote that in the script. I need to repent. There were lions, tigers, and bears. You had the uh, Syrian bear that was very... Um, there were a lot of those in Job's day throughout Edom. Lions, tigers, and bears. Oh, my. You had poisonous snakes. You had poisonous scorpions. You had all of these animals. You had these dinosaurs. You had all the regular terrifying animals in Edom during Job's day. All these dangerous animals, dangerous reptiles. All of them represent the beasts of the earth that people feared. And we don't really have this issue. We live in an urban development. And maybe Dennis can relate to it. He has a a beautiful home up in Don Pedro, and he can step out on his porch, and there's a rattlesnake. I don't think he's really fearful of it. It probably loses its life almost instantly. But if I walked out and saw a rattlesnake, ha! Right? Then I'd go get the biggest gun I have out of my safe and blow a hole in my sidewalk. We can't really relate to this, but this was... These were real issues for someone like Job. I mean, if you walk outside your door and Behemoth is out there, okay, you go back inside, right, and wait for it to pass. Or you take a pet and throw it out there and say, here you go, here's a snack. They were terrified of these sorts of animals, and rightfully so. And, and Eliphaz tells Job that he will not fear any of these wild animals if he will simply repent If you just repent, you'll be in right standing with God and and this fear that you have of these big nasty animals and even the little serpents that have poison. I don't know why he's giving him this promise, but maybe he kind of had conversations with Job about snakes or something. Now, we do see this principle in several passages of Scripture, which is interesting. Isaiah 11, verses 8 and 9. This is incredible. The nursing child. Okay, so when you talk about a nursing child, you're talking about a small child. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra. Okay, first of all, (laughs) there is no way I would have let any of my sons back in the nursing stage play over the hole of a cobra. Are you kidding me? And this is what the text says. The nursing child shall play over the hole of of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den, another poisonous snake. He shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. This is, in a sense, a promise that wild beasts won't be able to harm God's people. Isaiah 65, 25, the wolf and the lamb shall graze together. Okay, that just doesn't happen today. The wolf eats the lamb. The wolf and the lamb shall graze together. The lion shall eat straw like an ox. That's going to be interesting. And dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, says the Lord. And Hosea 2.18, I will make a covenant for them, or and I will make for them a covenant on that day with the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the creeping things on the ground. And I will abolish the bow, the sword, and war from the land, and I will make you lie down in safety. These are all prophetic promises that point to a future reality, but Eliphaz is saying these are a present reality for you, Job, if you'll just repent. G, Job will become a successful farmer again. Verse 23, again, this is poetry. 
for you shall be in league with the stones of the field, and the beasts of the field shall be at peace with you. The stones and beasts of the field refer to agricultural troubles. In Isaiah chapter 5, verse 2, the vineyard owner clears the vineyard of stones. Okay, so stones are no friend to the farmer. You got to get the stones out of the field you're going to plow and all that. In 2 Kings chapter 3, verse 19 and 25, covering fields with stones is a deliberate act of war. One farmer would do this to another farmer. To sabotage his neighbor's crop, he would get stones and throw them out throughout the other, his neighbor's field and jack up his crop and ruin his ability to plow and all that. That was an act of war. So we can see how stones work with farming. They don't. And then beasts of the field, such as little foxes, ruin the vineyards. Song of Solomon, chapter 2, verse 15. In other words, animals have the ability, beasts of the field have the ability to destroy crops. Do they not? Especially insects. So to be in league with the stones is to be at peace with what we loosely call nature. And to be at peace with the beasts of the field is to be at peace with all animals, especially those animals that are used in farming like sheep, oxen, and female donkeys, chapter 1, verse 3. Eliphaz tells Job that he will be a successful farmer again if he will repent. Why? Because he will be at peace with God and he will be then, if he's at peace with God and in a right standing with God, he will therefore be at peace with land and animals. In other words, both will work with him rather than against him, land and animals speaking of. We do, however, see this principle in Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 9. The Lord your God will make you abundantly prosperous in all your work of your hand, in the fruit of your womb, and in the fruit of your cattle, and in the fruit of your ground. For the Lord will again take delight in prospering you. H. Job will have peace. Verse 24a, you shall know that your tent is at peace. The word tent seems to refer to Job's home or estate. It may also refer to his life and health. Uh, chapter 4, verse 21 kind of points to that, how it talks about how a man's uh, uh, tent cord is plucked up, meaning his life. His life comes to an immediate, abrupt end. In any case, Peace will be what characterizes Job's life. Now we have to ask, was Job at peace right now? Heavens, no. No, peace had, had fled from him when he lost everything. Now Eliphaz has already described how God will remove every kind of trouble and threat. And this is how Job can have peace at home and in life. If he wants this peace, the peace that he enjoyed before, if he wants it, all he has to do is repent. It's all he has to do. This principle of, of peace here is repeated in Job 21, verse 9. Their houses are safe from fear, and no rod of God is upon them. I, Job will be protected from theft and losses. We see this in the second half of 24, 24b. And you shall inspect your fold and miss nothing. 
the Sabians, a lightning bolt, and the Chaldeans robbed Job of all his riches last time, right? All of everything that he possessed was stripped away by two different bands of people and then a lightning storm which started a fire and consumed up a bunch of his animals, destroyed his wealth. And then a great wind tumbled his oldest son's home and caused the loss of all his children. Remember, the roof fell in and ten kids were killed instantly. Eliphaz tells Job that theft and losses such as these will be a thing of the past if he will repent. The divine hedge of protection that previously kept Job safe, his possessions and everything about him safe, his family safe, that divine hedge of protection will be restored. And when Job takes inventory of all that he has, he will see that nothing is missing. Not a single female donkey, no camels missing, no sheep missing, no oxen missing, no children missing, no property missing. All of these things will be maintained. He will retain them all. That is the promise here. If you'll just repent, nothing will be gone. J, Job will have a vast lineage. Verse 25, you shall know also that your offspring shall be many and your descendants as the grass of the earth. I think that of all these promises that Eliphaz was making to Job, this one was the most painful. This one cut him very, very deeply because it refers to his dead children. Again, Eliphaz believed that they died as a result of Job's sin and refusal to repent. And he's basically, Eliphaz is basically telling Job that if he will learn from his past mistakes, if he will repent of his sins, this will never happen again. You will never lose your children like that again. In fact, you'll have, you'll have more children. Not only if you just repent and get right with God, Job, you'll have more children and your children's children will have children and you'll have grandchildren and great-grandchildren and so on and so forth. Your descendants will be as numerous, your progeny as numerous as the grass of the earth. This is what Eliphaz promises. I'm telling you, this was a sword through this poor suffering man. He is telling him that your sin killed your kids, but if you give up your sin, you'll have kids. This principle, however, is repeated in Job 21, verse 8. Their offspring are established in their presence and their descendants before their eyes. We see it in Psalm 72, verse 16 as well. May there be abundance of grain in the land. On the tops of the mountains may it wave. May its fruit be like Lebanon. And may people blossom in the cities like the grass of the field. And once more in Psalm 112, verse 2, His offspring will be mighty in the land. The generation of the upright will be blessed. So there is a principal truth here in this progeny that the righteous shall have. But I'm telling you, this, 
was a shotgun blast to Joe because it pointed out his sin and the death of his kids. And, hey, man, you can have more kids, dude. I, I know you lost your kids, but you can have more kids if you'll just repent. I mean, this is just... If we could create a blooper reel of bad counseling sessions, this is at the top. This is not something that you say to a grieving parent. Well, you can have more kids. <laughs> All the parent can think about are the ch children that they lost, the child that they lost. They can't think about having more kids. In fact, they're terrified to have more kids because maybe those kids will get snatched up too. This is, this is terrible. K. Job will have a, or live a long and full life, verse 26. <clears throat> Eliphaz says this, You shall come to your grave in ripe old age, like a sheaf gathered up in its season. More poetry. This is Eliphaz's final guarantee, final promise to Job. <clears throat> when it was time for Job to die at the end of his life, Eliphaz said he would come to the grave in ripe old age, which means that he would be full of vigor and, and healthy until the moment of his death. In other words, nothing would cause him to die prematurely, nothing would cause him to dwindle away over time and then die like a cancer or a disease. He would spend all his days in vigor and health and then just go, which in my mind seems like the best way to go, just to be healthy and then you're alive and then you're not. And that certainly, I don't think I've ever even experienced that or seen that. We have lost uh, a great many people through uh, in this church and uh, not necessarily at this church, but people who um, are related to you guys. And, and that's not been the scenario that we've seen. We've seen cancers and these things and the dwindling away of life. But Eliphaz is telling Job, you'll just live right up to the point where you're supposed to die and go be with the Lord. You're not going to die of a sickness, so you're not, it's not going to lead into that. You're not going to have a three-year battle with cancer. You're not going to have to go through chemo. You're not going to have to deal with any of that stuff. You're going to live a long, fruitful life. He would be like sheaves gathered in season, a life in full harvest that would conclude in a state that was bountiful and fruitful. This is what Eliphaz is telling Job. Job, if you will simply repent, you're going to live a long, full, prosperous life. You're not going to deal with diseases. Nothing's going to take you out like that. You'll just be alive, and then you'll be with the Lord. And we do see this principle in Genesis 15, 15. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. We see it in Genesis 25, verse 8. Abraham breathed his last and died in a good old age, an old man and full of years, and was gathered to his people. And again, in Genesis 35, 29, and Isaac breathed his last, and he died and was gathered to his people, old and full of days, and his sons Esau and Jacob buried him. And lastly, we see it in Proverbs 10, 27. The fear of the Lord prolongs life, but the years of the wicked will be short. All of these principles, this truth is, is true. Now we can move to our last verse. We're done with the list. 
Verse 27, this is what Eliphaz says, lastly, behold, this we have searched out. It is true. Hear and know it for your good. Eliphaz tells Job that he can trust his wisdom, he can trust his instruction because uh, him and, and Bildad and Zophar, they've done all sorts of research on these things and they have concluded that this is the way a moral universe works. God rewards the good and He punishes the wicked. That's their standard issue theology. If you will repent of your sin, you will be in right standing with God. All of these promises, all of these blessings shall be yours. Eliphaz concludes his first speech with an exhortation for Job to hear his instruction and know that it is for his own good. Closing. Eliphaz was the Joel Osteen of his day. He promised that Job would have his best life now if he would simply get right with God. That's actually stretching Joel Osteen because I've never heard Joel Osteen tell anyone to get right with God. He assumes that everyone is right and is worthy of their best life. So Eliphaz is a little bit better than Joel Osteen, not much. The question is, how accurate was his message? How accurate is his instruction? Will a sinner who repents experience the blessings he described to Job? Here is the truth. God is always on the side of the repentant, the righteous. His holy people can trust that He will deliver them and protect them and give them peace and provide for their needs, so on and so forth, always in accordance with His will and purposes. The people of God, in other words, the people of God can bank on His promises. We can. We know that God has our best in mind. Even though we go through the good, the bad, and the ugly, we know that He is forging His purposes and sanctifying us through them, that He has our best in mind even when we go through things that we cannot possibly understand or comprehend because they don't seem like they're going to help us. So what I'm telling you is that, yes, a sinner who repents can experience these blessings. The sinner who repents is the person who repents and turns away from their unbelief and puts their trust in Christ. But we need to understand that many of His promises, God's promises, including several that Eliphaz pointed to, will not come to fruition until the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, these are, these are not right now promises. Some of these promises that He mentioned are not for right now. They're promises to the saint, but you're not going to get them until Christ comes back. Peace between land, beast, and man, and man, that peace between man and animals and the land and all that stuff, that kind of harmony and unity that, that, that he describes here, that's a future promise. You're not going to see that no matter how many times you confess your sin. 
You may have peace in your life, the peace that transcends all understanding, because that is a gift that God, a, a grace gift that God gives His people. But, but, but having peace with everyone else and having peace with the pit bull running down the street and having peace with the land where the land doesn't... Uh, we don't have peace with the land right now. It's 105 outside. This is not going to happen until Jesus comes when He will make all things right and redeem all of creation where creation will function precisely how it should. That is not a promise that you will experience today. Deliverance from all types of trouble and from war and the power of the sword, that's a future promise. How could, we poss how could Eliphaz possibly believe that that's something that Job would experience in his day? Now, that's not to say that, that God won't deliver us from dangerous situations. I think He does, and I think He does frequently. But if that's just a rock-solid promise to those, repent, to those who repent and believe in Jesus Christ, then God lied to the Apostle Paul because he suffered hell on earth. God lied to Jeremiah. God lied to Isaiah who was stuffed into a tree then cut in half. Those men did not escape the sword. Paul had his head cut off with a sword. That is a future promise. When the Lord Jesus Christ comes back, He will subdue His enemies, establish peace in His kingdom on earth. It's a future promise. So, we must also not forget that Job was blameless and upright. He was repentant when trouble poured over his life like a flood. This fact, this reality, completely destroys Eliphaz's entire argument. The only way for the promises that Eliphaz gave to Job, for those promises to work, is that in his mind, in Eliphaz's mind, Job has to be an unrepentant sinner. But Job was blameless and upright. It wasn't his unrighteousness that brought all of this divine chastisement and judgment. It was his righteousness. And I've said it over and over. Eliphaz, in his theology, in his worldview, he doesn't have a category for righteous suffering. God punishes the wicked and rewards the good. That's as far as he goes. There's no middle ground there. There's, there's no way for someone who's a righteous person to suffer in Eliphaz's mind. And if that's the case, then what the heck happened to Jesus? The most righteous man to ever live, killed, murdered. So, Eliphaz, his entire thing is, is, is based on, uh, on the, uh, the supposition that, that Job has to be in sin and unrepentance, and that's the only way his theology works. It doesn't work if Job is blameless, because then these things couldn't happen to you, Job. You understand? His whole argument is torn down by that fact. A right understanding, or a right not understanding, a right standing with God does not guarantee our best life now. <laughs> Jesus said righteousness will actually invite trouble into our lives. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Matthew 5, 10. 
Let me tell you something right now. The best way to keep trouble out of your life is to stay away from righteousness. Right? Get rid of it. The world will not attack us if we are like everyone else. It won't. It'll leave us alone. It'll celebrate us. It'll worship us. It'll reward us. This is why persecution in the U.S. is so extremely low. Christians here are enculturated. They are just like the culture. You, you can't tell the difference. For crying out loud, even the culture today says, I'm Christian. Christians are just like the culture, therefore they don't suffer persecution. They don't suffer these afflictions and these sorts of things. Our culture says things like, hey, throw buckets of ice water over your heads and Christians go to Home Depot and buy buckets and then they go to Walmart and buy ice. Then they dump buckets of ice over each other. The ice, bug, ice bucket challenge. Whatever the culture says, Christians do. Our culture says, don't gather in churches. Christians stay home. Our culture says, don't sing in churches. Christians stop singing. Our culture says, you better be woke. And Christians jump on the social justice bandwagon, and some even pledge their support to BLM. Christians in America are not persecuted because they do not live righteous lives. That's why. There's nothing different about them. But righteousness cost Job everything. And maybe that's the fear of Christians today. Well, if I live the way Jesus wants me to live, then I will lose the favor of my co-workers and so on and so forth. It was Job's righteousness that led to divine testing, to the brutal assaults of Satan to the destruction of his wealth, family, and health. It was righteousness that brought these things about. And guess what, Christian? Righteousness could cost you everything. And the question is, are we willing to lose it all for the sake of righteousness? This is the price for following Jesus. This is the cost of discipleship. But I will say it is totally worth it. The eternal weight of glory God's people receive outweighs our struggles, outweighs our sacrifices, outweighs the, the stripes we receive for following Jesus, 2 Corinthians 4.17. It's worth it. Knowing God and being known by God is the highest prize, the most satisfying gift sinners like you and I could ever receive. To be known and received and accepted and loved by God is worth the warfare this world wages against us. It's worth it. I fought for the other team for 30 years. <laughs> Joyless. I had no peace. I had... To be known 
by God and to be loved by God, to be in His true family is, that's the only way I've made it thus far. So it's worth it. It's worth it, isn't it? Brothers and sisters, we are not in this thing for our best life now. We are not in it for temporal blessings. We are in it for Christ. We are in it for others, the church. And we are in it for the life to come. May we set our minds on things above, not on earthly things. Doing this will help us suffer well for the sake of righteousness when our time comes. When our time comes.